is come on gray hairs for God and the back says turn it down just a little bit bro I don't want to hurt anybody's ears the back says leading the charge and it has Proverbs 16 31 anybody know what that says gray hair is a crown of glory See, you younger people, you're always chasing your glory, trying to go to a meeting to get it. We carry it wherever we go. Come on! We are boomers and we're proud, okay? I randomly read this week in the news a story about a lawsuit that had made it all the way to the Supreme Court, and it's about workplace discrimination against the elderly and this was interesting because one of the pieces of evidence when I re read through it was that the younger manager who supposedly discriminated against the older worker used the phrase repeatedly to them, okay, boomer, okay, I did not know that was a derogatory put down, condescending thing. The feel that I get is it's kind of like when your elderly grandma says to you, now son, if you'll just take two teaspoons of cod liver oil every day, you won't ever get the flu when it comes around. And you go, okay, grandma. Okay, boomer. Can I tell you there's still some of us boomers that have fire? Okay, can I just tell you, younger generation, about fire? Okay, the only part of a fire is not the dancing flame. We like that, but there's another part of the fire called embers. That is the part that has burned longer than you, and it's still hot. And if you look it up, go home and Google it. If you look it up, what the embers do to the fire is that they stabilize it and they sustain it. And listen. This is a real. When the wind blows on the embers, they become the hottest part of the fire. Come on! We're not done yet. As long as we have breath, we're still going to burn for Jesus. We might not be able to dance as good or as long as you guys. But we're helping to sustain and to stabilize you wild flames that get out there, okay? We want the flame. We want the dancing flame. But you need the stability and you need the sustainability of having embers beneath you that are constantly breathing fire in you to help you to burn. You've got to have both in a fire. And all the gray hair said. And all the millennials said, okay, boomer. Go ahead. If you need to say it, go ahead and get it out now. Okay, boomer. Okay, boomer. I'm, I'm okay with that. I want to preach today on prayer. I want the title of my message is The Joy and Adventure of Prayer. And I know that for a lot of people, honestly, that doesn't resonate because that's not your experience of prayer. And I want to help to shift us. I'm excited about the prayer circles that we're doing. We're going to do that at the end. That's going to be the altar call at the end. We're going to get together in our circles, and we're going to keep praying. One of the encouraging things that I have heard and feedback from the circles is I've heard several people say this, and it's so awesome. I felt the pleasure of God in that. I felt the pleasure of the Father in us gathering together and praying like that. That's awesome. So Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to start. 
Philippians 1, the joy and adventure of prayer. Philippians 1. I want to read verse 1, and then I want to go to verse 19 and 20. Make some observations here. Verse 1 says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to, what's the next word? To who? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. It's not just to the Green Beret elite. One of the mistakes that we have made, in my view, in the charismatic movement, when we talk about prayer and intercession, we relegate it to a special class. There's a Green Beret out there. They're called the prayer warriors. There's a Green Beret out there. They're called the intercessors. And it leaves the rest of the body like, oh, that's not me. I, I, don't, I don't fast twice a week, and I don't pray six hours a day. So that's, that's really not me. And the picture that the New Testament gives, I just want to put this out there, is not that there's an elite group of prayers that make things happen. It's that the entire body, all the saints, are endowed with authority from the Lord Jesus Christ when He rose from the dead. And everyone has a supply and a provision to put in. And if we don't have 90% and we're always looking to the 10% of the Green Beret to get the job done, we're always going to come short. Every part of the body of Christ has an endowment from Jesus of His authority to rule the nations. And we all have to put in our supply. Verse 19 of this chapter, 1 of Philippians. For I know, Paul's in prison, as, as many of you know. This is one of his prison epistles. He's in prison when he writes the, to the Philippians. I know that this, my imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance. How, Paul? Through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Please notice there that Paul connects the provision of Jesus Christ in his life with the prayers of other saints. It would not be hard for me to make a strong case that Paul was probably the person living on the earth in that day when he wrote this who had a greater revelation of the supremacy of Jesus Christ and of the authority of the believer than any person living. I believe I could make a strong case for that. Why would he ask all the saints in Philippi saying, pray for me? Repeatedly, at least eight times in his letters, he asked the saints, pray for me. It's, it includes the weakest of saints. It includes the most newly born again into the body of Christ because when you come into Christ, Jesus delegates and gives his almighty authority a deposit of it to every believer. And it's the supply of everyone putting in. It's not just the green beret. We've done a disservice. I, I say again, we've done a disservice to the body of Christ in the language sometimes that we use of prayer warrior or intercessor. Or what, do, what is your calling? Oh, I'm an intercessor. That's awesome. So, is, so are all the saints in Philippi. So are all the saints in the body of Christ. You may be more devoted to it. You may have more time for it. You may have more of a passion for it in some ways. But every believer has to put in their supply. This is how God so constituted the body of Christ, that every believer has a supply. So let's finish up these couple of verses. I want to make some observations and we'll move on. 
Verse 19 again, I know that this, my imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers, through your prayers, through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I carry a burden for this body and for the whole body of Christ in my heart. That burden is that those who feel like they're weak, that they're not one of the Green Beret, just back out and defer and let everybody else pray and seek the Lord. I have a heart for those that feel weak and feel like they can't do it. They can't live up to the level of what's put out there as what a prayer intercessor warrior is. Can I just say that I think we've made a mistake in, in the charismatic movement in that we have made one of the largest motivations for prayer guilt? If you really love God, you'd pray. And we're like, must not really love Him. Can't do that. Can't get up and fast. I can't go and pray. I can't, I can't do what they do. I can't hold the mic. I can't walk up there and I can't pace and shout and, and come out with passionate prayers like that. Can I tell you that guilt is, there, there's a place for it in the body of Christ. There's a place for it in our walk with God. Guilt is like the alarm that says there's something wrong here and we need to respond to it. It's not of the devil, okay? We, we need guilt to help awaken us, but guilt, that horse will not take your cart to market. It won't keep you coming back for more. That horse will not sustain you in a life of prayer and devotion to God. It will not. Do you know what a life of prayer and devotion to God is based on? I believe in the Scripture primarily. It's not guilt. And there's a lot of obligation in there. And you go, prayer is work. And this is the language that we use. We're laboring in prayer. And we're like, I don't know about that. I don't want to do that. There's definitely the obligation. Pray without ceasing. Pray with all kinds of prayer for all the saints, with all perseverance. All this kind of language is in there. Pray for all men and for all leaders. Good grief. And all the saints, that's all. It sounds like work, and it feels to a lot of people like work, and their main motivation is they can get stirred up, come down to the altar, and then they're going to come to a prayer meeting. But I can guarantee you this, because I've been one of those people. When I started out as a believer, I got all fired up about prayer, stirred up about it, started reading all of E.M. Bounds books, read them all. I've got, in my library, in my house, I've got shelves this, this wide full of books on prayer. And I've read almost all of them. But here's what I found. That can't sustain you. The thing that sustains our hearts in a life of prayer and devotion before the Lord, really, the primary thing, it's this word, delight. Pleasure in the kingdom of God has a much greater power to sustain than guilt, always. It is written of me in the volume of the book, it's said of Jesus from Psalm 40, verse 8, quoted of him twice in Hebrews. I delight to do your will, O God. The disciples come up to Jesus. He hadn't eaten. He'd been ministering to the woman in Samaria in John chapter 4. And they go, Lord, 
do you need something to eat? He goes, no, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Really? Who gave it to you? No, it's not what you're thinking. My food is to do the will of my Father. There's something delightful and satisfying about doing the will of my Father. My heart connection to the Father is not that I'm motivated by guilt, that I've got to do this because everybody's going to look at me and go, how much do you pray today? Sign this card. I'm just telling you, I've been around the fire. I'm one of the embers, okay? It doesn't work. You're always going to shake down to those who connect. The ones that are the prayer warriors that you look up to and you go, man, how do they do that? They're the ones that have touched and tasted the delight of the Father in drawing them into something beyond themselves. John 16, 24 says, Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Jesus put the paradigm out there that asking and receiving from the Father produces joy that cannot be quenched. It's indestructible joy. Here's David's motivation for coming to God. Psalm 43, verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre, I will praise you, O God, my God. There is an element of delight. This is my prayer for these times when we have prayer circles. Because I, listen, I I get it. I know how it is. I, I know how this works. If you can taste the pleasure of the Father in your heart, you will keep coming back for more. It will motivate you to keep coming back. Father, I just want to be in your presence. I want to feel your pleasure and know I'm doing what you want me to do. There is nothing that motivates more than that. When I was in elementary school, okay, boomer. This was right after fire and the wheel were invented, okay? So the scientific experiments back then were a lot more primitive than they are now where everything is computer and all that. So we were studying the brain and the different sections of the brain. There's, there's a pleasure center in the brain. And one of the experiments that they did that we studied about was they take a rat. They find out where the pleasure center in the brain is. They stick a wire on there, whatever they do. And then they stimulate that pleasure center. And so they hooked it up to this little bar in the cage of the rat, the pleasure center of his brain. And so when that rat went up there and pushed on that thing, he's like, ooh, that felt good. And so what would happen is the rats then would start going. They would keep pushing that bar down because the pleasure center in their brain was being stimulated until they just fell over in a heap. That's true. Can I tell you, you have a pleasure center in your heart. And when God touches it, you just want to do that again. That's supposed to be what happens in a life of prayer. I'm telling you, you won't build it on discipline. There's very few people in the world, very few people in the world that have built a consistent, strong, long prayer life based purely on discipline. I'm telling you, the vast majority of us in here, including myself, you can't do it. 
You'll always be frustrated. You'll always be disappointed. You'll always be guilty. You'll always be under condemnation. I know from experience, again, being around for a few years. When you preach, the two things that produce the most guilt in the congregation are if you preach on evangelism or you preach on prayer. Always. Because everybody's guilty. I don't pray enough. If we did a show of hands in here today and I said, who in here feels like you pray enough? As much as the Lord wants you to you pray, it wouldn't be very many. There'd be some. And you're in a season now. And probably next week if we caught you, you wouldn't raise your hand. Come on, am I talking real or not? What we have to do, what God wants us to do in prayer, He's inviting us into an adventure of sharing His heart burden. We want to feel His pleasure. Father, you want to do this. I delight to do your will. How can I be part of this? And when He stimulates that pleasure center in your heart, it will motivate you to do anything. This is what motivated the martyrs. Come on, this is how the martyrs, when they're getting ready to be burned at the stake... Old man, if you'll deny Jesus, we won't burn you at the stake. Jesus has done only good to me all of my 84 years. Why would I be such a fool as to deny him now? What are you waiting for? Bring the fire! You know how somebody can say that? It's because they've touched God has touched inside of them the pleasure center of their heart. And there's no motivation like knowing that what you're doing is connecting with his heart and pleasing him. That will make you walk the longest mile, labor in prayer, pray for all saints, pray for all men, pray for all the needs. Thank God for the people in the body that we can call up and we just dump all of our needs on them and they will take them before the Lord. But I don't believe that that's God's best. I said, I don't believe that that's God's best. I said, I don't believe that that's God's best. I don't believe that that's what the New Testament reveals. We all, every part of the body, they only have a portion of the authority of Jesus Christ to use in prayer. And you have the other piece. And we have to get involved. Guilt is not a good motivator. Let me just mention boredom. Can we speak to that for just a minute? A lot of people say, well, when I pray like that or go into prayer meeting, whatever, it's, it's just boring. I don't really. C- can I say we're not, we talk about be- people being bored with God. I honestly, I don't think that's possible. I don't think Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, that any one of the words that he would have used of his experience being in the presence of Almighty God was, dude, that was boring. No, it was overwhelming. It was crushing. It was intimidating. It was fantastic. It was amazing. It was transformative. It was revelational. It was crazy. But it wasn't boring. There was nothing boring about being in God's presence. So what is the problem? We're not connecting with our heart to the heart of the Father that touches that pleasure center in us and goes, man, you're the most fascinating, amazing, delightful person I've ever met. And I just want to tell you when we're talking about the life of prayer that the way to have a sustained life in Jesus like that, whether you're intercessor, whether you're just talking about your own personal prayer life, is, is 
we have to connect with the heart of the Father to where when he touches us, we feel his pleasure. If you don't do that, you will not survive in the prayer. You'll get, there'll be a message preached and you'll come to the altar and you'll cry and you'll boo-hoo and you'll say, God, I'm so sorry, I got distracted. And and then the the same cycle will repeat again. I'm telling you the truth. Let's not go there. Let's try to move beyond the guilt motivation and the boredom and the distraction that keeps us from this place that God has called us to. It is a place of adventure. It is a place of beauty and of joy. I submit to you. Let me read this that I wrote down when I was pondering this and meditating. We're really not bored with God. We're bored because we're only talking about God and not deeply experiencing Him. The last thing Isaiah would have said about God in Isaiah 6 was that He was boring. And and let me put this out there too. Just, Just take it if it fits. It's not the responsibility of ministers to cause you to have a deeper experience with God, but to provoke you to go to the open door of the throne room of grace and experience God for yourself. If you're his child, the door is open forever, forever open to you, and the voice inside is calling your name. That's the reality. One of the weaknesses of the charismatic churches is that we expect other people to facilitate our encounter with God. One of the weaknesses of the charismatic church is that we expect other people to facilitate our encounter with God. That's false. That's not New Testament. Then we're always disappointed and bored when we're left with just our everyday life with God. Daniel chapter 4. Let's start on the adventure part. Daniel chapter 4. One of the most profound statements in all of Scripture about God was made by a pagan king who didn't love or serve God. I want to read it to you. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. It's in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 to 37. Let's just read that. This is profound. And it begs a question that we have to answer in the whole issue of prayer. Daniel 4, 34. At the end of that period, that's seven years, that Nebuchadnezzar was like an animal. His hair had grown like eagle's feathers, his nails like bird claws. After that period was over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Notice what he says about God. So profound. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand. That means no one can slap his hand and say, what are you doing? Or say to him, what have you done? And at that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true. 
and His ways are just, and He is able to humble those who walk in pride. God does whatever He wants. He is the sovereign. This is, this is the definition of the word sovereign, okay? He does whatever He wants, whenever He wants, and nobody can say to Him, why did you do that? Because He has the right to do whatever He wants, whenever He wants. That's the sovereignty of God. Here's the question that that begs when it comes to prayer. Why would God need me and you then to pray for things that he's already decided that he wants? What's the answer? Why would this kind of God ask us to pray without ceasing? To be praying for all men, to be praying for leaders when he's the one who can take a Nebuchadnezzar and go... You think you're all that? Look at the glory of my kingdoms and all that I've built. And the Lord said, not impressed. Bam, lost your mind. Seven years, you're going to crawl around like an animal. Oh, he got the revelation after the seven years. Um, he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. It's awesome. Why would that kind of a God enlist us to constantly be praying and asking for things that he wants to do? Answer is, Relationship. He has so ordained his kingdom that he's going to have his way. He's going to get his way, but he invites us into connecting with his heart to get what he wants. Can I give you a revelation? Praying in the New Testament is mostly about getting God what he wants. Praying in the New Testament is mostly about getting God what He wants. I know we think it's about getting ourselves what we want. That's on the list, but it's not at the top of the list. Jesus, we see that you're a man of prayer. You go up to the mountain, you spend all night praying to God before you make decisions and all that. Can you teach us how to pray? Yes, absolutely. Here's how you pray. Pray, our Father in heaven let your name be hallowed let your kingdom come your rule and reign be established let your will be done everything that you want to do let it be done these are the priorities of prayer jesus i believe in the lord's prayer is setting down priority lines the first priority is that god's name be honored treasured cherished loved magnified submitted to and honored and that his kingdom, his purposes be established, and that his will be done. Can, can I just tell us, like, it's, it is a revelation for us because we think of prayer as asking and receiving for ourselves. And part of the reason that we're bored is because self-centered people are the most bored people in the world. When my kids had, in the summertime, said, I'm bored. Really? You just watched three videos. You just played five video games. You just did all these other kinds of games and played and did this or that. Really? When you're on an adventure and you're joined up with the heart of the Father, that's a different paradigm for praying. Now, praise God. Our needs are on that list. It's down there further, but it's ask for your daily bread, and I'm glad to give it to you. But that's not at the top of the list. And I, I know there's the verses in the Bible, trust me, I know them in James, you have not because you ask not. 
You ask and receive not because you ask for wrong motives. I, I get all that. There is a place for asking for our own needs, and I'm not minimizing that. I'm just saying if that's the only thing that we see about prayer, we're missing a huge part of it. God wants to engage us in the adventure of getting for Him what He wants. That's what prayer's about. Oh, we're praying for revival because that's what we want. Well, the question is, is that what God wants? You go, of course it is. Well, maybe it is. Let's pray for that then. But let's look at it from the perspective of, God, we're asking you to do what you already want to do. Connecting with his heart is the only way to be successful in prayer. Can I read you a quote? If I have it. Let me read you a quote from John Piper real quick. The key to praying with power... And I, I listen to John because I know he is a man of prayer. The key to praying with power is to become the kind of persons who do not use God for our ends, but are utterly devoted to being used for his ends. I just don't know what to pray for. All men, all leaders, all saints, God's kingdom. God's will, right? that's a big agenda. That's a massive agenda. And so can, can we not trust to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm bored because all I do is ask for myself, for me, my family, for my needs, for my business, for my this. And he says, yeah, would you connect with my heart and put on my heart something that's dear to you that you want? And let me be part of feeling your pleasure connect to me in such a way that I can actually, amazing, the God who can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He wants my little heart. He wants my weak voice, but my willing heart just to come and connect with him and breathe through me. He wants me to pray always in the spirit because the spirit is the one that knows what we should pray. And so I connect with him. And an adventure begins. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Carte blanche, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Lord, I want the winning Powerball ticket. No, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Lord, I want a, a new house and a new job, and I want the trophy wife. And I, No, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. What does it mean to ask in his name? It means to do it for his benefit and in his interests. You can't pray a prayer of faith if you don't know that the Father is not willing to do it. This is the confidence that we have before him. First John says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. I get this is a different paradigm for prayer, but this is the New Testament paradigm. Praying in his name is a kingdom thing. What does he want? He's the king. What does he want? I'm going to give him that, Lord. Connect my heart to what you want. I don't care if I'm even interested in it doesn't matter if you're interested it's more important than what I'm going to mess with you come on this is this is how we become a body of prayer this is how we become 
a people that are saturated with prayer, that it's like breathing. How do you pray without ceasing? Because you have things like that on your heart where the Father's touched and something that you see triggers it and you start to cry. Oh, God. Rescue these girls from human trafficking. Walking in the streets of Sasua in the Dominican Republic and seeing 68-year-old guys from Spanish-speaking countries and 17-year-old Dominican girls that are obviously prostituting themselves walking down the street just wide open. The Russian mafia owns a whole apartment complexes in the country and all, everybody that stays there is a prostitute that they've got. There's a massive palace up on a hill in Sasua. It's got a helicopter pad. It's a walled compound. It's palatial. looks like a castle. A brother has taken us around, showing us, says to me, do you know what that is? I said, no. He said, it's a brothel for world leaders. They fly here from all over South America and Spanish-speaking countries. God, that's more important. I thank you that you care about my car. I do. But my God, that's way more important than my need or the hard time that I'm going through right now. Can I connect? Can you connect me somehow with your heart and what really burns in you, what's really important? I know you love me. And I know you promised to take care of me and provide my needs. But if that's all that I obsess on, I want to tell you that I'm a dwarf. I'm dwarfed spiritually. And my prayer life will always be boring because I'm never really fully connecting with the heart of the Father. God, from the beginning, has ordained in His amazing wisdom. He doesn't, listen, this is the revelation of a Scripture. He doesn't need us at all. <laughs> he doesn't need our fellowship. The love in the eternity is perfect and full, and God has always been totally satisfied in a relation. But wonder of wonders, He wants us. He desires us to be close to His heart so that He can express His own heart through us. He wants us to partner with Him in what He's doing. No longer do I call you bond slaves. For the bond slave doesn't know what the master's doing. But everything that the father has told me, I've told you. Why? Because I want you to share in my mission. I want you to share in my passion. I want you to share in my heart. I want you to touch my heart so that I can touch the pleasure zone in your own heart and say, I love that. That's what I'm talking about. If you've never heard the father say to you, that's what I'm talking about. You need to. This is at the heart of having a prayer life. It's getting beyond ourselves and our own need and connecting with the heart of the Father. His plan has always been for us to reign, reign with Him, right? Paul says if we endure with Him, we will also we'll reign with Him. To the weakest and most failing church of the seven churches, in, in Asia. What is the weakest and most failing? Laodicea, right? 
To the church of Laodicea, he says, to him who overcomes the weakest, most carnal, most prideful, foolish and deceived church. To him who overcomes, he will sit with me on my throne, even as I have overcome and sit on my Father's throne. That's phenomenal. What are you even talking about? Your rule of the nations, your rule of the universe, your kingdom is so massive, and you're going to tell me I'm going to sit with you on your throne? Try to picture that. And I'm going to flow through you. I'm going to help you steer that car like your little boy when he wants to drive that car at eight years old. Okay, honey, you're not going to drive the car, but you can sit here on my lap, and you can pretend like you're driving it. And you can tell all your friends, Dad let me drive the car. But it was really me that was driving it because I had my hand on the wheel and I would have the brakes and the gas pedal. He wants us to partner with him in what he's doing. To him overcomes. How are we doing? Everybody good? You guys, if you're not used to my intensity, just know that I love you. It just comes out that way. and I don't try to make it happen like that. Um, but there's still some embers inside that are on fire. And, and my heart, again, for this body with prayer and what we're trying to do here is to build a platform and an atmosphere where God can come and do anything he wants. And I believe if we're focused on what the Father wants and that's what our desire is and we're connected with his heart in that way, anything can happen. I said anything can happen. Good things definitely will happen. That's the direction that we want to move. That's why there's this emphasis right now on prayer in our body. Because prayer in the body of Christ is like your blood. It flows and it carries, like Paul said, provision. And supply, it cleans out all the stuff that's defiling and takes it away to the liver to be cleansed out so you don't get poisoned. And it supplies the nutrients to the rest of your body. Prayer is like blood in the body of Christ. You can't live without it. You have to have it. All right, Ephesians chapter 1. Now I'm going to go into my teacher mode. Is that okay? My favorite thing to do is to have a whiteboard and a marker. And to, and to cause a wrestle in the students. How many Maranatha students we have here can say amen to that? Now, I love to cause a wrestle, and I love to see the looks of bewilderment on the face. and going, what? That's awesome, because here's what I know. If you don't wrestle with the Scripture, then you don't ever own it. And if you don't own it, it doesn't have life in you. Ephesians chapter 1, I want to read verses 17 to 23, make some observations. I actually have a graphic that's going to go up in just a little bit. It's the best, it's the closest I can come to whiteboard and marker. Okay, verse 17, you're familiar with this passage, but let's look at it a little bit more closely. Verse 17, Ephesians 1, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. We get that. It takes the Holy Spirit for us to understand the things of God. Everybody said Amen. Yes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know. What do you want us to know, Holy Spirit? I want you to know what is the hope of his calling. 
What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And we're not going to talk about those. That's a big subject in itself. But where I want to focus is 19 and following. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I know that that didn't strike us too deeply because if it did, we would have gasped. It would have been like getting the phone call saying, you won the Powerball lottery. Oh. This is an amazing passage. I want to explore it just a little bit with you. It ties directly with the whole issue of prayer, what we're talking about, and as far as the adventure. So let's look at, let's look at four things in this passage, okay? The first thing is the vastness of the power he calls it the exceeding greatness, or some translations say that it is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. So let's look at the power first. We're gonna, I'm going to have you pull up that graphic that I've got. Just looking at this, this verse, especially verse 19. And let's just look at it for a minute. Ephesians 1.19, there's the four Greek words for power. So there's four Greek words. I'm not trying to, to get cerebral on you and to go into the brain. I just want you to see what Paul's doing here. There's four Greek words in the New Testament that are used for power. This is the only verse that I know of in all of the New Testament where they're all put together. They're all stacked together. The first one is power. You know this word. What is it? Dunamis. Dunamis means God's ability, the things that he can do. Okay, that's the idea behind that. So there's different nuances of meaning behind these words. I just want to kind of put the picture out there for you. If you could read Greek and understand the nuances of these different meanings, that's what I'm trying to get you to, what Paul is saying here. He's blown in his mind about the power that was released at the resurrection. And as we're going to see in a minute, it's aimed in a certain direction, which is the gasp. Dunamis is the first one. Second one is the word working, which is the Greek word energia. It's God's active power. It's the force and the result of his working. The third one, strength, which is iskus. It's God's inherent self-contained power, the strength that's inside of him. So, Willie, stand up. All right, do this. When you see Willie, what is the thing that you think about him? Besides him having mental issues. No, just kidding. No, just kidding. What do you think about Willie when you see him? Seriously. That dude is strong. That dude is muscular. That dude is strong. That's Iskus. How do you think God looks in the spirit? He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Look, he put the stars in the heavens the Bible says, with his fingers. 
Do you, you know how many stars there are? Just go ahead and answer no, you don't. Here's the way a secular astronomer explained it, and it has stuck with me ever since. The number of stars in the universe, which, by the way, the Bible says in Isaiah 40 that God named them all. Okay, so here's how you determine the number of stars that he set. And you know, most stars, the sun is just an average-sized star. There's, lots, there's stars that are thousands of times bigger than the sun. If you counted one star every second, it would take you 15 trillion years to count the stars that we even know are there. If you count one star per second, it would take you 15 trillion years to count even the stars that astronomers know are there now. Dude, that's a lot of stars. He did that with his fingers. He measures the universe with the what? The span of his hand. Seriously? 500 million light years? Okay, every light year is like 6 trillion miles. You do the math. He's really big. He named all of those stars. You're never the smartest one in the room. Iskus. All right, the fourth one. It's the word kratos. Might, God's manifested power, His dominion and His creative power. So this is the root of God, the title for God Almighty. That word kratos is in there and they just put a word meaning all in front of it, pan. That's the word Almighty. That's where Almighty comes from. His might. How strong is He? How much might does He have? How much creative power does He have? How much dominion does He have? So here's Paul looking at the resurrection of Jesus and the power that was released in that resurrection. And then notice the direction of it. Look at verse 19 again. What is the surpassing greatness? Yeah, it's immeasurable. Of his power. Where is it aimed? Go back to, yeah. What is that at the end of the second line there? Toward us. That power of the dunamis, of the iskus, of the kratos, of the energeia, that power is aimed somewhere. Who's it aimed at? Come on, you guys. Are you serious? The power that he exerted in the resurrection is the most explosive power that has ever existed. The resurrection, with one mighty release of God's power, all of his enemies were overcome. All of his people's salvation and transformation were secured, and the establishment of all his eternal purposes was guaranteed. The keys of death and Hades were retrieved, and Jesus was declared to be the only one worthy to open the seals to obtain the title deed to all of the earth and its history. He was forever established and enthroned as the rightful heir of all nations and their glory forever. But God in his wisdom enlists us in partnership with his heart to become agents of enforcing what the resurrection accomplished. Book of Hebrews says, 
All of his enemies were put under his feet, but we don't yet see that, right? But we don't see that yet. What is he waiting for? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. He's waiting for you and me to take our place because he gave us a portion of the authority that came through him to accomplish his purposes. Number three, this is a a huge revelation in this passage. Question, did God give you that power? Did he give you the power? Did he give you that power? Okay, and the answer is no, he didn't. You said, well, you just went through all this, and now you're saying, no, he didn't give it to you? Exactly, because there's, there's a way that is phrased in this passage that we miss a lot. Look at verse um, 22. It says, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, who did he give? Who did he give? He gave him, who's him? He gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What does that mean? The release of that power comes only through relationship. Look, this is, this is the way we talk in charismatic circles. I've been around faith circles a lot of my life, and the way that we talk about faith is, I don't know how many sermons I've heard ad nauseum about faith being the force. And it's like the force in Star Wars. Here's the force, Luke. <laughs> That's not what faith is. Faith is a relationship and a trust in a person. Faith is having your heart connected to his heart to where his confidence is imparted to you and you believe him to do the thing. The reservoir of that resurrection power is in the person of Jesus and he's the one in God's wisdom. Thank God he didn't give the church the power to use in their own discretion. We'd all be destroyed. He gave Jesus as the head to the church. That's an incredible statement. God the Father gave Jesus the resurrected Lord that has subdued all principality and power and might and dominion far above all of them. He has all of this release of God's power at his disposal. Here's the catch. It's released in our lives through relationship with him. Hence, this is the adventure of prayer. The resource is never lacking. Sometimes the relationship is lacking. But the resource is never lacking. We could get on an adventure with that for sure. We connect with God's almightiness to accomplish his purposes on the smallest and on the largest scales. And we join in that adventure. God's amazing to me how he answers prayer on such small things. We were talking the other day my son Wesley's here. When he was a little guy, our oldest son, Jace, had given him a pocket knife. And he loved that pocket knife because he loved Jace, and that was a special gift for him. And he, that was his constant companion. He had that pocket knife. He would go out, and he would whittle, and he would carve on things that he shouldn't carve on, and our bedposts in, the, in that room were all carved up and all of that. And one day he lost that knife, and he was distraught. And he said... Help me find it. So we actually took time. Okay, take time out of homeschooling. Everybody, we're going to take the next 30 minutes. And just search and find it. Carissa was usually one that could find lost things. So we're like, Carissa, see if you can find it. 
So everybody's searching and looking. Under the couch, under the, you know, everywhere that you would look for a lost knife. Behind the chair, everywhere. Outside, where did you go? Were you out here? Were you out there? Everybody's searching the yard in the house. Can't find it. Had those days repeated a few times, right? A few different times. Everybody's searching. Can't find the knife. It was a month or two, maybe later. Wesley was just feeling the pain of that loss still. And he went to Diane and he said, Mom, would you please pray that I can find that knife? I really want to find that knife. She said, okay, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to show you where it is. That night, how old was Wesley then, 10? Oh, yes, Brennan. Okay, yes, Brennan prayed. And so Brennan prayed. He's the man of faith and power now, not my wife, okay. So Brennan prayed. Get the, this is what wives help you do, get the details right. <laughs> honey, when you said that, that wasn't really right. I hate that conversation after preaching, okay? Um, uh, you really didn't say it right. I'm like, baby, next time I'm just going to call you up here to tell the story. Right? So don't, don't throw water on me, all right? So, all right, so Brennan prayed, which is all, it's awesome. Here, if we're talking about, so Brennan at that time, how old was Brennan? Six, seven, eight. Six, seven, eight. God's mighty man of faith and power, come on. Lord, show Wesley where the knife is. That night, the Lord gives Wesley a dream. And in that dream, he sees himself with a flashlight. If I don't get the details right, don't shout it out now. But <laughs> he gets, in the dream, he gets the flashlight and he goes under the couch. And our couches is one of those ones that, you know, on both ends it reclines out like that. And so there's like a little, there's a little rail underneath there, underneath the, the cushions and whatever. And he sees himself in that dream picking that up. We had searched that couch, I don't know how many times. Everybody went to the couch first. Of course, that's where you think it is. He saw himself in the dream lift that cushion up, look on a certain side of that underneath that rail on there his knife was. The next day he gets up and he's going about his day and he goes, Hey, wait a minute. I had a dream last night that my knife was over there. He went there, lift up that cushion. It was right there. <laughs> Why does the God who is the Almighty care about that? Because he loves his people and he loves to show. You have not because you ask not. I want to engage you, whether it's a pocket knife, whatever. I want to engage you, my people. Not prayer is a duty, and this is hard, this is labor, this is work. There may be some of that aspect to it, but I want to engage you with my heart and see what I can do. Next time you look a pocket, lose a pocket knife, who are you going to call? Brandon. Call Brandon. <laughs> All right, we're trying to get out of the performance mentality, okay? Brennan is the, is the prayer for there to be hidden things revealed. So that's his anointing. Now. This is what we do in charismatic circles. God answered somebody's prayer for this. So now let's put them up and let's build them a little platform. Lord, we're going to build uh, some tabernacles here. Brennan's going to get one because he's the prayer of the revealing of the pocket knife. And the Lord says, hey, I died for you. And the door is open to you. And if you come to me and connect your heart with me, I'll do wonderful things that you have not even thought of. 
Not to him who is able to do. Exceedingly abundantly. Above all that we ask or even think. By the power that is working in us. It's not ours to possess and do with what we want, but it's working in us. And it's working in us through relationship with the one that he gave as the head to the body. The whole answer for prayer, can I tell you this? It's really true. Trust me, I'm on a journey. I'm not a green beret. I threw my green beret hat away a long time ago into the fire. Because there was a time in my life when the Lord showed me, spoke to me so directly because I thought I was, I was the man. I was dedicated. I was committed. I was on fire. I was this or that. And until one day in prayer, the Lord spoke to me so clearly like a bam. And he said to me, um, I just want to tell you something. Like I have people in every part of my body that love me more than you do. Like Lutherans, <laughs> Methodists, Catholics. He's like, every part. I'm like, okay. Green beret hat in the fire. Boom. He doesn't, he's not looking for green berets. Thank God for those who give their life to prayer. Thank God for the Reese Howells. Thank God for the praying hides. Thank God for them. He's looking for us to connect our heart to him. He wants to do wondrous things. He wants to show us wonderful things that we haven't even thought of. Let me read you just a couple stories, and we're gonna we're gonna close out. These aren't long. Don't be bored. <laughs> okay, this is Elizabeth Elliot tells this story. Somebody sent it to her. She wrote something in one of her books, and a lady sent her this story that was kind of parallel to that. It's amazing. Listen. This isn't super long. It's just worth reading. I'm going to read two stories that are about this long. They're not long. So this lady, her name is Brenda Foles. She's from Princeton, Minnesota. She went rock climbing for the first time. She said, I started up the rock as fast as I could determine to set my face like flint toward the peak. After a time, I came to a difficult ledge, and my breathless scrambling came to an abrupt halt. Suddenly, the rope was pulled too tight, and it hit me square in the eye. Oh no, I thought wildly, my contact lens is gone. From my precarious perch, I looked everywhere on the rope and the sharp granite rock for the tiny transparent lens, which could easily be mistaken for a water droplet. Lord Jesus, help me find it, I prayed and pleaded, knowing the hopelessness of my search with such limited mobility. I looked as long as I could maintain my hold, praying with a sinking heart. Finally, I resumed my climb with one last glimmer of hope. Maybe the contact was still in my eye, crumpled in the corner up under my eyelid. When I reached the top, I had a friend check to see if she could find it in my eye. It wasn't there. Every hope was gone. I was disappointed and anxious about getting a new contact so far away from home. As we sat and rested, surveying the world from such a gloriously high perspective, the fragment of a verse popped into my head. Here's the Lord. He's reaching out with his heart right here. The eyes of God go to and fro throughout the whole earth. That's all she got. The Lord was like, I know where it is. 
God knows exactly where my contact is. This moment from his high vantage point, the amazing thought struck me. But I'll never see it again, I concluded. Still glum, I headed down the path to the bottom where the others were preparing to climb. About a half hour later, another girl set out where I had also begun my climb. She had no inkling of the missing contact. But there, at the steep bottom of the rock face, she let out an excited cry. Hey, you guys, did anyone lose a contact? I rushed over as she continued yelling. There's an ant carrying a contact down the mountain. Sure enough, special delivery, I bent down, retrieved my contact from the hardworking ant, doused it with water, and put it back in my eye, rejoicing. I was in awe, as if my father had just given me, though so undeserving, a big hug and said, my precious daughter, I care about every detail of your life. Come on. That's your father. You see how he put that thought in her heart? Just partner with me. I want to show you something of my own great heart. That's powerful and beautiful. That's a small thing. He also does big things, nationwide things. This is an old book that I have from Derek Prince. Some of you gray hairs will know that name. It's called Shaping the World Through Prayer and Fasting. It's an oldie but a goodie. He tells a story out of there. Early in 1953, I received information from reliable sources that Joseph Stalin, who at the time ruled the Soviet Union as the unchallenged dictator, was planning a systematic purge directed against the Russian Jews. Somehow I felt that God was laying at my door the responsibility for the Jews in Russia. Here comes the Lord. You want to know what is on my heart, what I'm interested in? I shared my feelings with the leaders of a few small prayer groups in various parts of Britain who also had a special concern for the Jews. Eventually, we decided to set aside one day for special prayer and fasting on behalf of the Jews in Russia. I do not recall the exact date chosen, but I believe that it was a Thursday. All the members of our groups voluntarily committed themselves to abstain from food that day and to devote special time to prayer for God's intervention on behalf of the Jews in Russia. Our own congregation came together that evening in a prayer meeting devoted primarily to that topic. There was no particular dramatic spiritual manifestation in the meeting, no special sense of being blessed or emotionally stirred. But within two weeks from that day, the course of history inside Russia was changed by one decisive event, the death of Joseph Stalin. He was 73 years old. No advance warning of his sickness or impending death was given to the Russian people. Up to that last moment, 16 of Russia's most skilled doctors fought to save his life, but in vain. The cause of death was said to be a brain hemorrhage. Let it be clearly stated that no member of any of our groups prayed for the death of Stalin. We simply committed the situation inside Russia to God and trusted his wisdom for the answer that was needed. Nevertheless, I'm convinced that God's answer came in the form of Stalin's death. You go, well, that wouldn't be God, really? Well, there's an incident really, really similar to that in Acts chapter 12. King Herod stirred up to persecute the Jews. He had James martyred and killed and beheaded. And then he, he saw that that pleased the Jews, so he went after Peter and put him in prison. Remember what happened when Peter's in prison? The church of God gathered, it says twice in that passage, they gathered together and prayed fervently before the Lord for his rescue and release. What happened? 
while he's in prison and asleep, somebody comes in, hey, wake up, wake up, dude, get up. It's an angel. And when they walked up to the gate, it opened of its own of volition, and Peter thinks he's dreaming this whole time, and he's leading him out, just follow me. They walk out past the guards unseen, go back to the place where he's, they're gathered up, and then he knocks. Little girl comes to the door, starts screaming. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! It's Peter's ghost. No, it's, it's actually Peter. It's, this is what you prayed. The father said, connect to my heart and I'm going to do something powerful for you on a bigger scale. So Peter's released. Herod goes then. This passage all flows together. Herod goes and he's trying to deal with an issue in another part of his kingdom. He gives a speech. He comes out there all dressed up. He stands up there and the people start shouting because they're trying to flatter him because he's there to bring down the hammer. They start shouting, it's a God and not a man. And and all of that stuff, and the Lord says, I don't think so. He sends the angel of the Lord, strikes Herod down dead. I don't think they were praying in that room that Herod would be killed. I just think the Lord in his sovereign wisdom said, you know what, Stalin, whatever, you're not going to do that. If your heart is so hard that you're going to be set that you're going to do that and you're not going to change, you're out. Same thing with Herod. If you're going to persecute my people and try to kill my leaders in my church, you're out. Took him out. God does whatever he wants in all of the earth, and no one can say to him, what are you doing? Here's the point. And I'll close with this. Bees coming. We're going we're gonna to have prayer circles as the, as the altar call today. Here's the point. Father God, in your life, can, can you hear this? Can you hear this call from the Lord? through his word. I want you to go on an adventure with me. Connect to my heart in the big things and in the small things of your life, of your ministry, of your church, of your family. I want to connect you to my heart. And as you connect to my heart, I want to do powerful things and demonstrate my sovereignty and my dominion over everything. Come on up, B. Let's do a prayer circle.